You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful for Your Word and for the record that it gives us of what Christ has done for us. Uh, it is the revelation of Your saving work in Your Son, and it is our joy and delight and the edifying and equipping portion of our time that we would reflect upon those things and that we would give some thought and attention to the cross and what it means for us. And we pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts to understand these things and to appreciate Christ and to love Him for who He is and for what He has done. Do this work in the hearts of your people through your work and through your word. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Now turn in John in your in the Gospel of John to chapter 19, John chapter 19, and we're going to read together as we begin the first seven verses. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" and he gave him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. We're starting this morning, John chapter 19, and uh, this, this chapter contains the account of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. That means that it contains some gory and um, uh, very graphic details concerning the crucifixion of Christ and what that means. And uh, we have seen Jesus humiliated plenty in John chapter 18. John chapter 18 has a lot of humiliation and uh, and gross um, things that happened to Jesus that he was not worthy of. And I'm just going to give you a list of them real quick to remind you of what he has already endured. In John chapter 18, he was arrested. He was bound. He was abandoned by his friends. Now imagine having any one of those three, let alone all three of those things happen to you. He was abandoned by his friends, and then he was illegally trialed before Annas. He was struck by a soldier before Annas. He was shuffled off to Caiaphas, where he was illegally trialed, uh, tried and slandered, and a lot of false accusations and vicious allegations were made about him. Then he was sent off to Pilate, and before Pilate, he was viciously accused and slandered, and all kinds of horrible accusations were made before Pilate regarding Christ. He was denied by his close friend and trusted companion, Peter. He was shuffled off to Herod, where before Herod, he was viciously attacked again, dressed up in a gorgeous robe and mocked and ridiculed. And then he was sent back to Pilate, where Pilate tried to get him released by having him exchanged for Barabbas. And the people asked for a murderer, an insurrectionist, and a thief, as opposed to Jesus, and handed him over to be crucified. And then he was, and even just all of that being shuffled back and forth between all of those people, that in itself was humiliating. Now, all of those things happening to him, how, how, how starkly contrasting that is to the glorious and majestic and, and, and a high and lofty prayer of John chapter 17. That's John 17 and then John 18. You have all of this humiliation and the, the shame that was heaped upon Jesus just during those course of events. 
But in John chapter 18, other than the one thing being struck by a soldier before Annas, Jesus has to this point, the end of chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 19, he has to this point not suffered any physical humiliation, any any physical abuse or pain or suffering. All of that, it's all, it's all been uh, the trials and things that happened around that, but no physical suffering, at least not pertaining to uh, the crucifixion itself. But now when you get into chapter 19, chapter 19 begins in verse 1 with Jesus being scourged. Chapter 19 ends with his body being laid in a tomb. And between those two marks in John's Gospel, there are a bunch of, of shameful and humiliating and painful and agonizing things that happen to Jesus of Nazareth. So I want to take a moment to explain to you how and why I'm going to handle some of the gory details of chapter 19. How and why. There are two errors that preachers typically commit in preaching through the crucifixion narratives in the Gospels. I have seen both of these errors committed. I have committed both of these errors. So this is a little bit of confession time for you. I'm going to avoid both of these, by the way. The first error is to be far too descriptive regarding the events that unfold in these chapters. Far too descriptive. It is interesting that the Gospel writers almost avoid the gory details. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate had took Jesus and had him scourged. John doesn't go into a detail about how much blood was lost, uh, how many organs were visible, how much flesh was shred, any of that. It doesn't go into any of those details. Just took Jesus and had him scourged. And it is almost, and this is true in all four of the Gospels, it is almost as if the Gospel writers consciously avoided the gory and graphic details of the crucifixion. What we have in front of us is a rather straightforward historical narrative of the events as they unfolded, and without all of the technicolor um, description, the graphic detail that we typically associate with sermons on the crucifixion. So the first error is to be far too, too descriptive and to go really beyond what Scripture says concerning the things that happen. Uh, being descriptive is easy. Grossing people out is easy. Shocking people is easy. It's low-hanging fruit. Really, it is. And if I got up here and gave you a, a bunch of uh, sensational, scandalous, uh, titillating details about the gory details of the crucifixion of Jesus, and I did that for 40 minutes, it would gross you out, it would probably bring tears to your eyes, it would shock you, and it would make for a very memorable sermon. And I understand that for men like me, whose sermons are not very memorable very often at all, that can be a very appealing prospect to do that. And it's low-hanging fruit to get people to remember it. I want to avoid that. I want to avoid that because the Gospel writers do not do not attempt to do that, to give the graphic and gory details. So we're going to... Let me tell you about when I did this, that I shouldn't have done this. In April of 2002, I preached the message in this church, back in this very room, back when we first moved into this room, when the stage was set up back in that corner over there, and it was in preparation for an Easter Sunday service, and it was the Good Friday or the Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday service. And I gave a description of what crucifixion was, and I went into a tremendous amount of detail in all of that. And the value of that, it has a shock value, but I'm not certain that that's not its, o- its only value. Part of the value I thought in that is was everybody understanding exactly what was involved in crucifixion because it helps steel our minds against one of the common um, explanations for the resurrection that skeptics and unbelievers typically use called the swoon theory. And there is a value, I think, in understanding what went on with crucifixion, but have you ever heard of the swoon theory? The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He swooned on the cross. He passed out, and they thought he was dead. Took him down off the cross, put him in a cold, dark, damp tomb, and there he revived. 
came to, rolled away the stone, came out and presented himself alive to his disciples. He never really died, but the disciples thought he had died. And so that's how the myth of the resurrection got started. That's the swoon theory. It was real popular a couple hundred years ago. When you understand what happened with the crucifixion and what was entailed in crucifixion, it puts the lie to all that nonsense. You realize there's no way that he swooned on the cross. He was he was murdered. He was killed on the cross. He was dead and as dead as Custer's horse on the cross when they took him off. There was He couldn't be any deader. And so there is some value there in understanding the um, what happens in crucifixion. But you don't need me to go into the details for two reasons. Number one, because you have Google. And anything you want to know about crucifixion or the details of it, you can get that yourself. It's at your fingertips. You can even look it up on your phone during the message if you want. That's okay. Or you can talk to me afterwards and I will give you any details that you think are lacking. Uh, you really don't need me to do that. Second, there are people in our congregation, more than one, more than many, I think, that would be easily disturbed by going into some of those details beyond what is just necessary to understand that. They are sensitive to that and we must be sensitive to them. Now, I understand that talk about sensitivity is probably the last thing that you expected to come from my mouth. And you think of me, you don't think of sensitive. That's not the first adjective that comes to mind. But some mornings I wake up, I confuse my multivitamin with an estrogen supplement, and I start to I start to feel and become sensitive and care about people. And then I write a message, and this stuff like this gets worked into it. And I've been to cry for no reason whatsoever. So that is what I am that is what I am working on is being sensitive to people who are here. If you have questions about crucifixion, come and ask me. We're going to, I'm going to try and walk a very thin line between explaining what is in the text and not going far beyond and above what is in the text by being graphic. Now, if you come here every Sunday morning and you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait to get into all the gory details of this. I want to hear about all of that stuff. And you're wanting me to play this out before you so that you can picture something like a Quentin Tarantino film, then you need help. That's not why you should be coming here. So we're going to talk about some of the details, but we're going to do it in a very measured way, I think, in, in, in keeping with the spirit and intent of the Gospels. The second mistake that I have seen committed, and I have myself committed, is to play on the emotions in connection with the details of the crucifixion. And pastors will do this sometimes, because this, again, is low-hanging and easy fruit. Uh, you spend 45 minutes describing all the gory details, and then you end your sermon with something like this. Now, if you haven't been choking back tears for the last 45 minutes of my sermon, you ought to be ashamed of yourself because you're a despicable human being. You're probably not saved and you're certainly not sanctified. And if you're not on the verge of tears after all that I've said to you and you don't want to come forward and give your heart to Jesus after all that he did to you, then you are a horrible individual. And you should go home from here and really see it and examine yourself and see if you're saved. That's kind of a, I think, a shameful, despicable appeal to the emotions. The gospel writers do not do that. Have you ever noticed this? I noticed this early in my Christian life. Going through the Gospels, the Gospel writers, in giving all of this detail, they don't appeal to our emotion. John never says something like, here's what happened and here's what it's looked like. Now you ought to feel this way about it. Gospel writers don't do that. The appeal of the Gospels is to the mind through the truth, not to the emotions through feelings. It is an appeal to the mind. And the, the role and the job of any preacher or teacher of the truth is not to take a text of Scripture that is really preachable and use it like a cudgel to bludgeon people into an emotional pulp. I don't think that that's right. I think that that's an abuse of Scripture. I don't think it is what John intended. John doesn't do that, even though it would be easy to do to appeal to the emotions. So I think that we need to be sensitive to that and to be in keeping with the spirit and intention of the author, both the human author and the Holy Spirit. And they say, how do you know the intention of the human author? Because John has told us, I write these things to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the appeal. John doesn't say, I write this to you to move you emotionally, to stir your emotions, to bring tears to your eyes, to, to crush your heart. He doesn't do any of that. He wants us to know something and in knowing it, to believe it, and in believing it, to have life in his name. So that is the goal. Now, I know that's a lot to unfold for you, but I want you to understand why it is that I'm going to be handling some of these details in the way that I do. Chapter 19. Let's dive into chapter 19. This is, uh, we're going to be looking at the events that immediately follow, obviously, chapter 18. And this is Jesus again, his second time before Pilate. Uh, Pilate has tried to get the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus so that he could release Jesus. And again, keep in mind that two things. The issue before Pilate is whether Jesus is a threat to Rome. He has stirred up insurrection. That was the charge. He has told us not to pay taxes to Caesar. He declares himself a king, a rival to Caesar. That was the charge that was brought concerning Jesus before Pilate. So keep that in mind. Keep in mind also that Pilate, all the way through this narrative, since the time that Jesus appeared in his uh, in his residence in the Praetorium, Pilate has been seeking a way, trying to find a way to release Jesus in a politically expedient way. He doesn't want this case, and he's done everything in his power to get rid of it. He doesn't want to crucify an innocent man, but the Jews were pressuring him to do that. So with those two things in mind, we're going to look at chapter 19. We're going to see two things this morning. First, the ridicule of a king, the ridicule of the king in verses 1 to 4, and then second, the rejection of the king in verses 5 and 6. The ridicule of the king and the rejection of the king. Let's pick it up at verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And notice again there the lack of graphic and gory details. There's a little bit of a difference between John's record of this and the one that we read in Matthew, and you probably wouldn't have noticed this if I didn't mention it, so I'm going to mention it and point it out just so that I can raise the problem and then answer the problem for you. There's a difference in the order of details between Matthew and Mark's accounts of this and John's account of this. According to John's account, there was a scourging and a ridicule and then a public presentation and then the order to crucify and then Jesus was crucified. Okay. According to Matthew's account, there's ridicule and uh, and mockery, and then there is a presentation to the crowd, the order to crucify, and then the scourging. So according to John, the scourging comes in connection with, after he is ordered to be crucified, right before he's crucified, Jesus is scourged. According to Matthew and Mark, that's, no, John is first. Matthew and Mark, that scourging takes place at the end of all of those things. So why is there a different order between those, those different Gospels? Two things might be going on, and I mentioned this in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. First, keep in mind, Matthew and Mark are not necessarily giving us a chronological, uh, a strictly chronological account of what transpired. Matthew and Mark probably mentioned the scourging in connection with crucifixion because that was typically how it was done. And they are adding that as part of the physical suffering, even though it's not necessarily strictly chronological. You get that? So John is giving us probably the chronological account, Matthew and Mark are kind of lumping things together, not necessarily trying to be chronological. You say that sounds like a convenient way of getting out of a contradiction. No, it's actually just a way of understanding the the way that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and ancient documents were written. They weren't intended to be strictly chronological. There's a second way of possibly reconciling this, and that is to understand that maybe there were two scourgings and not one. That would mean that, and this is this is highly likely, this is very possible, that would mean that the first scourging was was not really vicious, it was not really intended to to it was intended to punish Jesus, but not necessarily to prepare him for death. It was intended to humiliate him. And then Pilate, after scourging Jesus, brought him out and presented him to the crowd. They cried for his crucifixion. Um, and then G- Pilate gave the order to have him crucified and then sent him away. And then he was scourged the second time. And that time it was more severe. That's genuinely a possibility, in which case it means that 
Uh, John mentions the first scourging, but not the second. And Matthew and Mark mention the second scourging, but not the first. That's a possibility. It seems that Pilate's intention with the first scourging is to humiliate Jesus, not necessarily to prepare him to death or to bring him close to the point of death. So it's very possible that there were two scourgings and not one. What was a scourging? And uh, how, how were scourgings done? And this is where I could get into the, the graphic stuff, but I'm not going to. Luke says in Luke chapter 23, verse 22, and he said to them the third time, that is Pilate, why, what evil has this man done? I found nothing in him, no guilt in him demanding of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, notice that before he is scourged, according to Luke, Pilate's intention was to punish him and then release him. Pilate's intention in one of the scourgings was not to kill him, nor to even bring Jesus close to death. That's why I think there might have been two scourgings. The, the intention of this scourging is just to humiliate Jesus. Now, typically a scourging was done when uh, the victim was uh, strapped down in place and bound, obviously, and whipped with something called a flagellum, which was a short-handled stick with long braided strands of leather with uh, chunks of metal and, and beads and balls and things like that in it. The intention, of course, was to bruise the flesh and to lacerate the flesh. Sometimes it was severe enough that people were brought even to the, close to the point of death just from the scourging itself because of blood loss and oftentimes dehydrated. This would explain to us why Jesus, or it would serve to explain one of the reasons why Jesus expired before the other criminals did. He was the first one out of the three, two other, out of the three that were crucified. Jesus was the first one who died that day. The other two were left alive, or were alive when Jesus died. So that would explain that. But it also explain why he was so very thirsty because of, of, uh, of, an, of, of a great amount of fluid loss and dehydration. What is significant in the fact that he is scourged is the fact that this was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning what the Messiah would endure. Let me give you a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. There, Isaiah speaking in the first person as if the Messiah himself is speaking prophetically. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. The spitting is one of the humiliations that takes place uh, according to the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, Isaiah there in, is, is prophetically portraying the Messiah in the first person. I gave my back to those who strike me. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And there in that passage in Isaiah, the word crushed, he was crushed for our iniquities. That word in the King James is translated bruised which would, of course, describe part of that scourging process. In 1 Peter 2.24, quoting Isaiah 53, Peter replies that to us and points to that Isaiah 53 passage as being fulfilled in Jesus on our behalf when Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So it is what the Messiah endured. It's what the Old Testament, they should have expected that the Messiah would have endured. The Jews were expecting a Messiah to come back and to conquer all the kingdoms and to set up a throne and establish a kingdom and make Rome subservient to them. That was what they were expecting. They were looking at a yet future to us even event and expecting that that's what the Messiah would do. And what they had missed was the suffering servant Messiah that Isaiah 53 portrayed. And when you look at the first coming of Jesus, you see that even though the Jews rejected him and even though they scourged him and mocked him and ridiculed him and beat him, that that in itself was even a fulfillment of what they said, of what the prophet said the Messiah was to do. This was to be expected. And the second thing to keep in mind here, again, is the substitutionary nature of what he is enduring. When we look at him being scourged and beaten, we ought to understand, that was for me. Because that scourging I deserved. It was my violation of the law that earned me that beating. That beating and so much more. 
But Isaiah says he was scourged on our behalf, and by his stripes, his, his wounds, you and I are healed. And of course, Isaiah is not saying that in the scourging, Christ paid the penalty, but that scourging was part of this whole suffering element that Jesus endured, which suffering element pays the price for the sin of his people. So that is something that you and I deserve, and he acted as our substitute. And again, I would just point out how reserved the gospel writers are in mentioning this. It's almost as if John avoids the gory details, doesn't he? He was scourged. And it it is sufficient, and it should be sufficient enough for our minds to simply have what is here in front of us and not try to get into all the gory details. Now you say, Jim, you got into gory details. No, I didn't. I passed over a whole bunch of stuff. It is very uncomfortable. All right, then there is mockery. Look at verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Verse 2 and 3 has a number of elements. There is the crown of thorns, there is the purple robe, and there is the, the verbal mockery and the slapping in the face. And let me, let's deal with each one of those rather quickly. It has been noted by historians and, and commentators that around in and around Jerusalem it would not have been difficult to come up with thorns and thistles. Now, what is significant about the thorns and the thistles is that there are all kinds of different uh, types of thorns and thistles. Let's just deal with thorns. There are all kinds of different types of thorns. There are the thorns like on a, a crab apple tree or a thorny apple tree or whatever you call those, the big long ones that rake across your arm when you're mowing your yard. There's those. There's also the little tiny thorns like you find on a rose, uh, rose bush. Um, and in Jerusalem, there were also very long, sometimes two and a half to three inch long types of thorns that grew on certain plants. And people are divided as to which type of thorn it was that they wove the crown out of. I don't think that that's significant. Whether it was long thorns or small thorns, it would have been painful. And to have your hands bound while they put that upon your head, uh, of course, would have been a horribly uh, a painful uh, event in and of itself. There is significance in the crown in this that, remember, the charge against him was that he was the king of the Jews. So what should have been in the coronation something that spoke of honor and, and regalness and majesty and authority and sovereignty and power, that became, in their mockery, a symbol of the humiliation and the disgrace that they poured out and heaped out upon him. And what should have been something that symbolized his sovereignty ended up becoming a symbol of shame when they put that upon his head. There's something else significant about the thorns. Thorns remind us of what? What do thorns remind us of? If you're biblically astute, you know that thorns should remind you of the curse. Before the fall, were there thorns? There were no thorns. Thorns and thistles came as a result of the fall. Not only that, but earning the bread that we eat from the sweat of our brow, that comes as a result of the, of the fall. How appropriate is it that the Lord Jesus, as part of redeeming, the, redeeming His people from the fall and redeeming His creation from the fall, would bear upon His own head the very thing that we associate with the fall itself? It is almost as if the symbol of the fall and the symbol of our toil and our frustration was laid upon his head as our substitute. There's something appropriate in that. And he did this as our substitute. He bore a crown of thorns, shame and humiliation, so that you and I can wear crowns of righteousness in heaven. That is the substitutionary nature of what he is doing. He bore the curse upon his own head so that we might not bear the curse upon our head. Now, second, the second element of that is the purple robe, or what John calls the purple robe. And at first I thought this was the robe that was being referred to uh, in Luke chapter 23 with the trial before Herod. Do you remember when Jesus, when Pilate shuffled him off to Herod, one of the things that Herod did after asking him questions and Jesus didn't answer any of his questions, he was viciously attacked by the Jews and the chief priests. One of the things that Herod did is he resorted to mock, mocking him. So he took out what Luke calls a gorgeous robe and put it on him and they all 
kind of mocked him and teased him and made fun of him as the quote-unquote king of the Jews as part of the Herod's humiliation. And then he sent him back to Pilate. And in my mind, I was thinking he probably sent him back to Pilate with this gorgeous robe on it. But what king sends away one of his gorgeous robes, even if it is a cast-off? He wouldn't do that. And then in studying this, I realized and came to find out that this was likely, since the scourging took place inside the praetorium. Remember, it's not outside. He's inside the praetorium for the scourging. Since that happened, this was one of the robes or the royal, uh, uh, the regal garments of some of the Roman soldiers. They had robes or cloaks that they would wear under special uh, occasion, like uh, their dress-up fatigues, as it were. And so this was probably one of the robes that the Roman soldiers would have worn, and they took it and they draped that over the back of Jesus. And, of course, both the crown of thorns and the robe that he was given are both intended to sort of picture him as this mocking, this mockery of a king. That's the intention. It is all humiliation. And you can imagine the pain of having a rope draped across the back that is sensitive from being scourged. And the third element of that, oh, the robe, by the way, there's a symbolic, uh, there's a symbolic or substitutionary symbolism in the robe itself as well. The robe is intended to be a mockery. It's not intended to honor him in any way. It's intended to shame him and to disgrace him. Is it not true that because he wore a robe of shame and mockery and humiliation that you and I get to wear robes of righteousness? That's what Scripture says. We do not have to stand before God clothed in the robes of our own self-righteousness, but instead we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in taking upon himself a robe of shame, he gives to us his robes of righteousness. There is an exchange, again, that is taking place because he is dying for his people. And the third element of this is the verbal mockery. The verbal mockery in verse 3, they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And that indicates that they were coming up and they were bowing down and they were ta- giving the, the standard sort of way of, of ascribing uh, royalty and dignity to him. Hail, King of the Jews. But you know there's absolutely no sincerity in this whatsoever. As they're bowing down and, and crawling up to him, it says they're, they're giving, this and they're giving this, uh, these adulations and then they're slapping him in the face. And Matthew says they're spitting at him and they put a reed in his right hand and hit him with the reed. And all of this is mockery, all the elements of it. The reed in his right hand was supposed to, to mock the scepter of his kingdom, the crown to mock his, his sovereignty and his right to rule and the robe to mock his worthiness of wearing such a thing. All of this is shame and mockery and humiliation that in every way is being heaped upon him. And as they're coming up to him, John says they kept on coming up. That's the sense of the Greek. There's three infinitives here in the Greek giving the, the sense that he, they, they're coming up. And this was something they did over the course of time over and over again. They couldn't get enough of this mockery. This is what the Romans did to the Jews. If they had an opportunity to mock a Jew, to tease a Jew, to humiliate a Jew, they did it. Because the Romans hated the Jews almost as much as the Jews hated the Romans. And in this mockery, keep in mind that the Romans are not just mocking the Jews for the sake of mocking the Jews, and not just mocking Jesus because he was a Jew, but in this, the Romans are mocking the whole idea of a Messiah and a Messianic kingdom. It goes beyond just let's humiliate this man because he is charged with being with calling himself the king of the Jews. It goes beyond that. What the Romans saw in Jesus was a picture of their Messianic hopes, the Jewish Messianic hopes. The Romans knew what the Jews believed, that eventually their Messiah, a descendant of David, would come and he would set up a kingdom and that Caesar would bow down to him. How funny is that? That Caesar would bow down to some Jew in that despicable city of Jerusalem, worthy of mockery, worthy of shame. And so now they have one who claims to be a king, one who is charged with presenting himself as the king of the Jews, one who is even a descendant of David, one who, whom they watched only a week earlier come riding into the city on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy uh, under the hails and the, and the shouts and the cries and the songs of all of the people, hail him, hailing him as the king. 
And now they get to mock him. And they did it with fervor. They did it because in mocking Jesus, they are mocking the whole religion of Judaism. All of their messianic hopes are being taunted and teased in this mockery. Verse 4. Pilate came out again and he said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is a public presentation. So keep in mind what has happened up to this point. Jesus had been brought out and they demanded that Pilate uh, release to them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so he brought Jesus back into the praetorium and had him scourged there. And all of this mockery amongst the soldiers and before the Roman cohort, all of this happened there in the private quarters of Pilate. And then Pilate came out without Jesus to the crowd and to the Jews who were standing there waiting. And he said to them, I'm going to bring him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And one of the questions that we are forced to ask is, what about presenting Jesus to the Jews did Pilate think would be evidence to them that he found no fault in Jesus? If he found no fault in Jesus, he should have never punished him, right? So he's already, Pilate has already started down a slippery slope of injustice by punishing somebody and humiliating somebody that he knew was not worthy of that and he knew did not deserve it. So he came out and he said, I'm going to bring him out to you so that you may know, that you may see, and it may become evident that there is no fault in him. It was already humiliated him. And then he brings Jesus out with the crown on his head, the robe on his back. Uh, doubtless that the scepter was there, but he is beaten and bloody and bruised. And now he is presented before the entire uh, crowd of the Jews for them to see. Now, what was Pilate's motive in doing that? Why would he have done that? Keep in mind that this whole time, Pilate is trying to get Jesus released. So why would he punish him and humiliate him and then bring him out? It seems to be that Pilate's intention in doing this was in presenting one of their own, a fellow Jew, who had been humiliated and mocked and spit upon and beaten by the Romans, that they would see this spectacle of a man before them and say, you know what, we can't tolerate these Romans doing that to one of our own. And that it seems as if Pilate's intention was to elicit some pity from the Jews in order to get Jesus released. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, He, that is Pilate, secretly hoped that the Jews would be satisfied when they saw the prisoner whom they had accused, brought out, beaten and bruised, and treated with scorn and contempt, and that they would not press the charge any further. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says it was, a plain, it was plainly ludicrous to take seriously any suggestion that this figure of scorn had pretensions to kingship. The very sight of him ought to be enough to demonstrate this and allow Pilate to release him. And that is accompanied by Pilate's declaration, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now, there's two ways that you and I can understand that statement. It could be taken two different ways. It could be ta taken, Behold the man could be taken as an expression of contempt. Look at this man. Right? As, as if Pilate is joining in on the mockery and the humiliation and heaping scorn upon Jesus in order to humiliate him before the people. It could be taken as a, a statement of contempt. It could also be taken as a statement of pity. And it seems, most people believe, that that's exactly what Pilate was going for. Because the phrase here could be translated something like this. Behold the mere man. The poor man. The weak man. The humiliated man. As if Pilate is bringing him out and saying, look at them. This is who you think is a threat to Rome? Look how humiliated he is. If somebody who is a threat to Rome, would he actually endure this? Could we actually do this to somebody who was a king, who was a messiah? 
This is who you think is a threat. This is who you think is an evildoer. Look at him. Behold, this poor, miserable, mere man. He's no king. He's no threat to Rome. And if that's the sense, it would explain why the Jews in verse 7 said, no, 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 Pilate. He's deserving of death because he made himself out to be the son of God. It's as if, notice the contrast. Pilate says, behold the man. The Jews say, no, he made himself out to be the son of God. That was the real charge and that was the real rub that he had made himself out to be the son of God. And they understood that. And Pilate is trying to elicit some pity from the crowd. Look at this poor man. And they say, no, 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 not a poor man. He made himself out to be the son of God. And of course, that scared Pilate. But we'll get into why it scared him next week. Look now at the rejection of their king in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Notice that that is the third time that Pilate has reiterated that very same statement. This is Pilate's verdict. He's not guilty. He's innocent. He says it in chapter 18, verse 38, 19, verse 4, and 19, verse 6. Repeatedly, Pilate said, I find no guilt in the man. So when he presented Jesus before the crowd, it had actually the opposite effect on the crowd than what Pilate was hoping for. Pilate was hoping that they would see pity, take pity upon him, see one of their own beaten like that, and say, no, we can't allow Romans to treat Jews like this. And that they might then change their mind. Crucify Barabbas and give us back Jesus. Or release both of them. We can't. The more Jews get released by the Romans, the better. The less Jews get killed by Romans, the better. Maybe that, and that seems to be what Pilate was, was hoping for, is that they would have pity, but they don't. Instead, they ratchet up their cries for crucify him. Now, if you read all of the Gospels together, the accounts of the crowd asking for Jesus to be crucified, it seems as if this crowd broke into that chant on more than one occasion. As part of the regular conversation, they would cry out to be crucified. Pilate would answer them and they would start up that chant again and that this happened more than once. You'll notice down in verse 15, John says, so, uh, so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So this cry for his crucifixion, this cry for his blood happened more than once uh, during this whole exchange between Pilate and the people. And notice the progression. They have gone now from asking for Barabbas to be released and they have ratcheted up their demands now, asking that Jesus himself be crucified. That is ultimately what the chief priests wanted. That's, they wanted him to die, and they wanted him to die at the hands of the Romans. So that they supposedly would not bear any guilt for what had transpired. Notice Pilate's answer to them, and it is an expression of his frustration. Down in verse 6, they cried out, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, and I'm going to insert something here, like a petulant child. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is an expression of Pilate's frustration. Take him yourselves and do this. Now, he is not genuinely offering to them the opportunity to fulfill the crucifixion and crucify him themselves. Romans never gave that over to any of their subjects. This is not a genuine offer. If you want crucifixion, I'll hand him over to you and you do it. It is Pilate's way of saying, if you want this man's blood, I don't want it on my hands. You do it yourselves. This is on you. I don't want to be your tool in this in this conspiracy. I don't want to be your tool to shed this man's blood. Pilate did not want this case in front of him. He hated the fact that he even had to deal with it. And he's been trying to get Jesus released. He asked the Jews for a charge and they floundered and finally invented one on the spot that he was an insurrectionist. And, and that and Pilate couldn't release him then. Then Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. They said, we can't because our law doesn't prohibit, prohibits us from putting anybody to death. So foiled again. Jesus is back in his hands. So Pilate then sent him off to Herod 
hoping that Herod would deal with it. And Herod frustrated him, sent him right back to Pilate. Now he's got him again. So he says, well, maybe I can get him exchanged for Barabbas. He presents that to the crowd. The crowd does the exact opposite of what Pilate thought they would do and hoped that they would do. And they asked for Barabbas and that Jesus be crucified. So he took, took him back and abused him and humiliated him and, and shamed him and beat him up and brought him back out as a pathetic thing, hoping to elicit some pity from the crowd. And what did they cry? Crucify him. At every turn, Pilate's intention and desire to release Jesus has been frustrated. Pilate knew what was right, but he lacked the moral courage to do it. And it is most certainly a judgment on a nation when their leaders know what is right and lack the moral courage to do it. It's an even greater judgment when the leaders of a nation don't know what is right and lack the moral courage to do it, even if they knew what was right. Well, that's the type of man that Pilate was. He wanted to do what was right. He's trying to find a politically expedient way of doing what is right, but he has been frustrated at every turn. So he says to the Jews, I don't want this on my hands. You deal with it. It's sort of his way of just expressing his frustration to the crowd. You take him yourselves and crucify him. And the Jews, of course, would have nothing to do with that. Now, as we leave this text, these first six verses, I want to leave you with a few things to be considering. First, keep in mind that all of this is voluntary. Everything that we're seeing Jesus go through here is voluntary. And I'm going to remind you this as we go through chapter 19, because we must always keep this in front of us constantly, that he is not a victim in this. He is a volunteer. He said in chapter 10, I lay down my life for my sheep. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Nobody takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down on my own accord. This is the good shepherd dying for his sheep. If he did not will to do this, he would not even be reading this. He wills for this to happen. In fact, we read in Isaiah 53, it was the good pleasure of the Father to crush the Son. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him on our behalf. So this is the will of the Father that this happened. This is the will of the Son that this happened. And this is the will of the Holy Spirit that this happened. All of this is completely voluntary. Jesus is doing this on our behalf as our substitute. And He is doing it quite willingly. Now, because He is doing this willingly and this is the will of the Father, that means that every attempt that Pilate makes to release Him has been frustrated. Because Pilate is not going to undo the will of the Father. It's not as if the Father and the Son are willing that the Son perish, or the Son die on behalf of people lest they perish, and that Pilate's going to somehow find a way to undo the eternal counsels of the Trinity by releasing Jesus. The fact that Pilate is unable to, to do any of this and finds himself in this position is because the Father has willed this. So as much as Pilate's going to try to do something else, it's going to happen exactly as it is written, exactly as the prophets predicted it, and exactly as the Father has willed it. But that does not mean that Pilate does not bear responsibility for this. Right? We have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see it being played out right here. In fact, Peter mentions that in Acts chapter 4, after being released from prison, the disciples pray, and they said this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now that's quite a coalition of interested parties, right? Herod, Pontius Pilate, Jews, and Gentiles. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, all of these people. And then look what Peter prays. Look what the disciples pray. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So who bears the responsibility? Jesus says in John 19 that they bear the guilt for it. Pilate bears the guilt. The Jews bear the guilt. The Gentiles bear the guilt. Herod bears the guilt. But who predestined this to occur? The Father did. That's according to the Father's good pleasure that these things would happen. This is a voluntary sacrifice. Second, friends, this is an innocent sacrifice. 
And again, I would just call your attention to the two times, three now, that Pilate has mentioned that he bears, there is no guilt, there's nothing in him worthy of death. He is an innocent man. He has done nothing deserving of this. I find no guilt in him. Pilate reiterated this over and over again. He is guilty of the charges. He is the sinless, innocent Son of God who knew no sin, did no sin, had no sin to atone for. He is the Lamb of God who himself is blameless and innocent and takes away the sin of the world. So it is voluntary, it is substitution, it is innocence, and it is a substitutionary sacrifice. This again he has done on our behalf. He is standing in our stead. That's what substitution means. He is, he is bearing the wrath of the Father on our behalf. All that he has endured, he is enduring on behalf of all people who will trust in him so that he might bear their sin and make an atonement for it before the Father. It is a voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice. Behold the man. Pilate said. And we can say, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Pilate didn't know that. He didn't know that it's the Lamb. John the Baptist did. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Pilate said, behold the man. All Pilate saw was a man. But when we look at him, we see the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, again we thank you for these reminders of what Christ has endured for us as people. And may these things find a place in our hearts and settle in there to cause us to rejoice in the great salvation that you have made possible because of what he has done. And may we, our hearts be filled with love for Christ and appreciation for it. Continue to remind us of these things and may we never lose sight of the fact that all that was suffered by that innocent sacrifice was suffered for us. And we gladly own him as king. And we know that one day all of those who bowed before him in mockery will bow before him on that final day, and it will not be in mockery, but it will be in subservience to confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of you, our great God and Father. We thank you for that, and we thank you for the eventual hope that we have in Christ because of what he has done, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.